morning. Please open your scriptures to Luke chapter 4. Good to see each of you. I hope you had a great Christmas week. I hope you are now braced for a new year. I think we learned this year that we truly do not know what to expect tomorrow, so we don't boast. Uh, we trust in the Lord each moment of each day and looking to Him to sort of arrange and orchestrate the events as He's already determined. Uh, in Luke chapter 4, we will see the Christ child grown up. Uh, and what he does is in the temple at synagogue, presents himself as the great prophet who brings good news of salvation to all people. Uh, the Bible, and I think you've noticed this, especially if you read the Christmas story every year, you're either reading a portion of Matthew or you're reading a chapter in Luke. The Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about uh, Christ's infancy, uh, his actual birth. It actually says less about his childhood. Uh, Mark and John are totally silent about it. If you read their account of the gospel, they begin right away with John the Baptist's witness of the Christ. There's no birth account. There's no childhood glimpses. Uh, what it does say is fascinating, fascinating uh, even though I have wondered what it would be like to hear about an eight-year-old Jesus or a 16-year-old Jesus or a 21-year-old Jesus. Um, but we'll have to wait until we get to heaven maybe to fill in all those blanks. Uh, we have a glimpse of his birth, a glimpse of when he's eight days old, somewhere between when he's 40 days old and two years old, and then a short snapshot of when he's 12. Everything else is about his adult life when he's between the ages of 30 and about 33 and a half. Um, the question is, if Jesus were born in your town or city, would you have recognized him as the savior of the world? Because Bethlehem didn't. Now, we would assume we did because we sit here in a religious building on a religious day, the Lord's day, uh, with holy scriptures in our hands. But so did they in the synagogue on, the sa on a Saturday. With some of the same books we have access to in a religious building with the prophecy backing it up, and they seem to have missed him. Or if he grew up in your town as a boy, as a 12-year-old boy, would you have recognized him sort of working with his dad in the shop and playing on the streets and doing his chores? Would you have recognized him as the Messiah, the chosen deliverer, rescuer of the world? And chances are you would not. You might if the prophecy said he'd been born in your town or that his birth would be unusual. But, but seriously, in the midst of all the busyness because of a secularly ordained census, sort of the tourism boost that happened in Bethlehem, you probably wouldn't have noticed. Because Mary and Joseph were probably not the only ones denied lodging that evening. And what would be more underwhelming than a young couple traveling in for the census on the outskirts of town? You would have probably missed it, except had an angel pronounced it or a mysterious star appeared. Go figure, because that actually is in the account. Other than a few shepherds, I want you to think about this. Other than Joseph and Mary and a few shepherds, it went completely unnoticed. To which some will silently object and say, weren't there three kings from the east and a little drummer boy? Right? Right. Well, let's talk about that. There were magi, 
which means magician. We don't like that term, so we use the alternate rendering of wise men. But they were magicians, sorcerers, astronomers. Magi were more highly educated and therefore deemed wise, but they were most likely not kings, and there were probably more than three. Some suggest from Oriental customs that the traveling party would have been at least 12, 12 magicians, sorcerers, which, which I know sabotages your greeting cards and your manger scene, right? And that's not my intention. Um, Magi studied many things, including astronomy. That's why they paid attention to what? And why they followed the what? The star that had appeared. They knew that wasn't in the sky before. They knew that. And so they followed this star trying to find a king. They appeared sometime after Jesus' presentation in the temple, which happened after the 40 days required for Mary's purification. So Jesus would have been at least six weeks old, but he could have been anywhere from six weeks to two years old, somewhere within there. And the wise men arrived at a house, not a manger, Luke says. And neither Matthew nor Luke provide a geographical location, but it seems that after the wise men inquired of Herod, the star appeared in a place they weren't expecting, and it was probably in Jerusalem. And they went and visited and presented gifts. But sadly, still no drummer boy. I don't know where, where he came about. But the story fills in when Jesus is 30. And that's why I've had you turn to Luke chapter 4. And it fills in on purpose. We are provided from ages 30 to 33. We are provided a clear and extensive record of Jesus' travel and ministry for three and a half years. He has interactions with people. There's signs and wonders. And there's a lot of teaching and all this culminates in his seemingly premature death. And all the, all the gospel accounts have a riveted focus on his death. And that was the main purpose for his becoming human, for his being born, for his growing up, was, yes, becoming human and his perfect life, but his unique sacrificial death followed by his resurrection. But his death only makes sense in light of the previous prophecies made and his own teaching. For instance, when Joseph and Mary presented Jesus in the temple, there was a man there that appeared, led by the Holy Spirit. His name is Simeon. And God had told Simeon that he would not see death until he saw the chosen one. And when Joseph and Mary came in the fulfillment of the Jewish law to present their child in the temple and offer the sacrifices according to their economic class, Simeon took this six-week-old baby in his hands, and the Scripture says... That Simeon said this to Mary. He's holding baby Jesus. And he says, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall. And many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. Simeon continues to say, as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and then almost as if looking directly into Mary's eyes, he says, and a sword will pierce your very soul also. What comes as a surprise to many people is that Jesus knew exactly why he came to earth. At some point from infancy until we find him in Luke chapter four, he has what we would call a messianic consciousness. He knew that he came to die, not for his own crimes or sins, but for the sins of other people. 
So who is Jesus really? Because the people that should have known him most and recognized him and studied the scriptures missed him. Bethlehem overlooked him. Maybe they were just too busy. Jerusalem couldn't find him. Even the king couldn't find a search party good enough to find the Christ child. And Nazareth rejected him. Do any of those describe you this morning? Do you overlook him? Have you misplaced him? Or have you rejected him? Well, in Luke 4, we're going to find out who Jesus is based upon three things. Immediate satanic opposition to Jesus. Scriptural fulfillment affirming Jesus, second. And third, the human rejection of Jesus. All of those culminate together to help us identify that this is not just another rabbi or just another good teacher or sort of this odd leader who's in charge of this cause against the Roman Empire. We're going to find out this is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Luke chapter 4. And I want you, we're not going to read it, but Luke chapter 4, I want you to glance down at verses 1 to 13. And that text should look familiar to you. You've probably heard several sermons on Jesus being led out into the wilderness by, not by Satan, but by the Spirit of God. He leads the Son into the wilderness to have a direct face-to-face confrontation with Satan himself. And Jesus has already had several indirect and direct confrontations with this being. He's a created being, but he is very powerful. Before Christ took on humanity, he told his disciples this. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So there was this sort of encounter with Christ, the son of God, before he became human. And he saw something about Satan and it was him being cast out of heaven like a bolt of lightning. It was Satan who tried to destroy the Christ child through Herod. As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation describes it with incredible imagery. It says that a dragon tried to devour the child. In fact, let me read to you right out of Revelation 12. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, which was a messianic prophecy. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So what Revelation is doing is it's giving you sort of these two prophetic mountain peaks. He was born. He survived. He was caught up. So all, all John is doing in Revelation is saying that there was danger at his birth because the dragon wanted to devour him. But then he was caught up, snatched up to God and to his throne, which is a reference to Jesus' resurrection and then his ascension. Luke chapter 4 describes the most direct confrontation with Satan that Jesus had as a human. Here are the three areas, because Satan is very strategic. He has an incredible battle mind And he is very strategic in the three spheres he tempts Jesus with or attempts to undo Jesus with physically. Remember the first one? Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's human. That means he's what? He's hungry. And Satan suggests that Christ selfishly take advantage of his sonship. Satan knew he was the son of God by turning stones to bread. Okay, take advantage of your identity of who you really are. And of course, Jesus responded by saying it is written. He tempts him not only physically, but vocationally. Jesus came 
with a mission in mind to die for the nations, to procure the nations to himself. And Satan offers to Jesus the kingdoms of the world without having to suffer a violent death. Can you hear this like satanic whisper in that suggestion of the unfairness of the father? I mean, I can give to you what you came for and you don't even have to suffer for it. But here, here's the catch. All you have to do is worship me. See, Satan still lusts for what only God has a right to. And that is the worship of humanity. He not only tempts him physically and vocationally, but spiritually by encouraging himself. And, and notice the strategy, the tactic. Satan takes him to the highest pinnacle of the temple, the highest part in the most holy city, Jerusalem. And, and now Satan actually quotes scripture word for word. He quotes Psalm 91 and he says, cast yourself down for the scriptures say that the father will send his angels and he'll take care of you. And do you know, there are times when something can seem so religious and fueled by faith, yet it's actually stupid and worse, satanic. Of course, Jesus all three times responds, either it is written or it is said. And of course, then he comes out of the wilderness and the father and the angels minister to him. And after this episode, it says, look at Luke chapter four, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. That's far north in Israel. And a report about him, about Jesus, went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. In Luke's narrative, this is a, an important change in his ministry. Jesus comes to his own hometown where he grew up, where the people knew him as a boy. And what we have recorded here, in essence, what's going to follow in the rest of Luke chapter 4 is Jesus' first recorded sermon. Okay, that's what makes this passage vital for our understanding. At least for Luke's account, this is Jesus' first recorded sermon. In this first sermon, Jesus finds in the writings of Isaiah a description of his own ministry. Or for us, the ability to identify who Jesus really is. Even at age 12, he had an understanding that impressed the religious leaders. Earlier, two chapters earlier, Luke chapter 2 says this in verse 46. After three days, of course, they went to Jerusalem. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, by Luke chapter 4, he has a messianic consciousness. He knows he is the Messiah. It's interesting that providentially they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. Can you imagine what Jesus must have felt when he knows he's the Messiah, the suffering servant? He's familiar with the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Let me just give you an example of that. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Jesus would have understood that's his future as a human. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted 
with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. He was oppressed and treated harshly, unjustly condemned. He was led away. His life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down. He was buried like a criminal. He's now at his hometown and that scroll is handed to him. No wonder later on he will pray, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Because Jesus knew what was in the cup. Because he knew the prophecy of the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. But then he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Having, having been handed that scroll, the contents of which he knew very well. Look at verse 17, the latter part of Luke chapter 4, verse 17. It says this. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Okay, and we read that passage. Jared read that for us at the beginning of our service this morning. And what he did is he found the place, whether he opened right up to it, but it seems like he's unrolling this scroll to the very end of Isaiah's prophecy and, and found what we know as, Psalm, as Isaiah 61. Look at verse 18. So he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus purposely turns to Isaiah 61 and, and the people are quiet. In part, I think, just because like when our scripture reader stands up to read, we're quiet out of respect, but something seems to be going on that's more than just respect in Nazareth because they had already heard some of the amazing things that Jesus had done in Capernaum and other parts of Galilee before he showed up at his hometown. Okay, you see that in Luke chapter 4, verse 23. They were expectant, right? By word of mouth, he's now in their synagogue on a Saturday. And they're wondering what he's going to say. Maybe they're even entitled because this is their sort of hometown preacher boy. He's ours. And if it's true that he's doing all these amazing things in Capernaum and other parts of Galilee, can you imagine what he's going to do for his own town? We helped him mature. He grew up with us. Here's what God's prophet had come to do. To preach. And it probably seemed very underwhelming to the people of Nazareth. Matter of fact, in Psalm 61, what he quotes three times, the word proclaim is used. That this Messiah, this chosen one, this rescuer has come primarily in his human life to proclaim something. Didn't they already have teachers? It's used twice in verse 18 and one time in verse 19. And I want you to see this. Look at chapter 4, verse 18. In his quotation, he says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me. That's what Messiah means, an anointed one. Luke 3.23 says this. This is what Jesus is referring to. The Holy, after John the Baptist baptized him, it says the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And the very next verse of Luke chapter three says he was about 30 years old. The spirit of the Lord anointed Jesus in a way unknown before. It also says in verse 18, he came to proclaim good news. That simply means gospel. And Jesus came to proclaim deliverance or redemption. We use all these words, salvation to all people. He came to, if you would reconcile sinful humanity with a holy God, and only he could do that as a priest and a prophet. In verse 18, it said, he says he, he came to proclaim good news to what specific group? What does it say? To proclaim good news to the poor. So this rescuer, deliverer, king is not going to overlook the least of these in Luke, the term poor refers to an economic condition, but not merely to economic status. It actually refers to spiritual depravity. He'll say this in Luke 6, verse 20, in two chapters later, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Why are the poor to be blessed? Well, because those who are rich and satisfied in themselves, those who have set up themselves as a king, have no need for Jesus. But lepers and beggars and blind people and spiritual lepers and spiritual beggars and spiritually blind people, they will see Jesus and they will have his attention. Look at verse 18. Not only will he come to proclaim good news to the poor, he will come to proclaim liberty to the captives. This probably includes exorcisms and healings, freedom from legitimate slavery. But in Luke and Acts, both written by Luke, Liberty or freedom, whatever word is used in your translation, refers primarily to the forgiveness of sins. The greatest freedom that we could possibly have. Freedom from the worst tyranny and the greatest consequence, enslavement to sin and the fear of death. Jesus came to deliver from that. Look at verse 18. Here's another reason he came. Recovering of sight to the blind. This certainly refers to those physically blind, blind Bartimaeus received both sight and acceptance. As a matter of fact, he then followed them on the way to Jerusalem when Jesus was returning there. But there's a broader sense in which blind refers to sort of a metaphorical blindness, a spiritual blindness. Often the purpose behind the physical healing. Look at verse 18. He goes on in his quotation of, Psalm, of Isaiah 61. He says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is the second time liberty or freedom is used. And what he is saying is the oppressed will truly find deliverance. And we're going to find out from a, from a particular person that that does not always mean deliverance from circumstantial prisons and oppression in this life. But it's a greater hope and joy in an ultimate deliverance to another kingdom soon. Then look at verse 19. The third time the word proclaim or preach is used to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what Jesus is simply doing here is proclaiming that that year had come. He's inaugurating his public ministry and all the promises of God, the Old Testament promises of salvation in a Messiah are being fulfilled. And you know what's interesting is if you go back to the original context in Isaiah 61, it actually, said, it actually talks about the day of the Lord's favor and follows it with this statement, and the day of God's vengeance. But Jesus 
purposely omits that part, which seems he wants to emphasize the present time and opportunity for salvation, not just to create fear and intimidate, but to give them the hope of the greatest joy possible, and that is freedom in Christ and the joy of salvation. Now, the importance of of Isaiah 61 being quoted in the New Testament is then seen in Luke 7, verse 20. Luke will also record this. Just go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 7. But we'll, we'll have to come back to Luke 4. John the Baptist is in prison, and he raises a question through two of his own disciples whom he sends as messengers to Jesus. He's languishing in prison, and he's starting to doubt. Here you have... Here you have the forerunner who leaped in the womb of his own mother when Jesus, who was in the womb, approached when Mary came. This guy, out of all the people in the world you would think should never doubt, he's one of them. But now he's in prison. We'll pick up our reading in, in Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, reported all these things to him, what Jesus was doing and saying. And John, verse 19 calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, here's the message. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Why do you think John might say that? Well, he's in prison. And he's still in prison. He was preaching. He was faithful in his ministry. And he's oppressed. And Jesus never paid him a prison visit. Can you imagine that? And so John's like, are you even the one? Look at verse 20. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, while John the Baptist, two disciples are there witnessing Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And it seems like after that hour of ministry, he looks at these two messengers and he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And can you believe what he quotes? Isaiah 61. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, perhaps hinting at the verse he omitted earlier that the day of vengeance is also coming. You know, John the Baptist was not delivered from his physical prison of oppression while on this earth. John the Baptist did not then get a personal visitation by the Messiah at his prison cell. No, what happens is something lewd. And the daughter, by the mother, requests the head of John the Baptist. It is without any hindrance taken from John and presented on a silver platter. And John's disciples may be wondering, where is Isaiah 61 in all of that? You know, Jesus often responded by saying, have you not read? As if that settled everything. In fact, Matthew 12, 3, he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Or Matthew 12, 5, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Or in Matthew 19, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Or Matthew 22, as for the resurrection of the dead, Jesus says, have you not read what was said to you by God? 
Or Matthew 12, 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or Mark 12, 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Present tense. He's the God of the living, not the dead. Have you not read? Perhaps he'd have to say that to you and me. When we doubt like a John the Baptist, when we don't understand what he's doing or the ways of God, have you not read? And maybe on the final Sunday of 2020, it would not be a bad thing to consider increasing our intake of God's word so that we know what God has said. Jesus found his own life and ministry and mission in the scriptures. He is now saying how the scriptures are being fulfilled as he's living out before them. And he is basically saying, John, you really shouldn't be doubting to this level because it's already been written. So I'm going to send my two messengers back to you without a personal visit. And they're simply going to tell you this is what is happening. He is the Messiah. Look at Luke chapter four, verse 20. We'll pick up this interesting narrative inside the temple. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Okay, so typically uh, in the synagogue during this kind of worship, uh, the, the, the reading of the scripture would happen when they were standing. And then to give instruction or comment, they would sit down. Okay, that's what Jesus is doing. He's been invited both to read and to comment. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. See, the people of Nazareth seem to know something special or at least unusual was unfolding right there. Look at verse 21. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now, if the reading in Luke had stopped right there, it would seem to have gone well. But, but here's, here's an important point that you don't want to just leap over. Jesus is not there to receive a warm and welcome sort of response as a celebrity by his hometown people. He is there to cause people to consider truth and to provoke them to respond. So look at verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. See, see, don't miss this. Jesus, again, is saying Scripture is being fulfilled right before your very eyes. And he's even prophesying you're going to say this, physician, heal yourself. And in Luke, Luke will record this in Luke 23, verse 35. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And I sometimes wonder if, if some of the very leaders in the synagogue at Nazareth aren't there at the foot of the cross saying those very things. Look at verse 24 of Luke 4. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you. And, and as if their response is not already negative, he's going to bring up two illustrations, one of Elijah, one of Elisha, other prophets, because Jesus is presenting himself as the great prophet. And these two prophets had overlooked the needs 
of the Jews and ministered to Gentiles. Okay, a little bit more about that in a minute. Verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. There was incredible need. Verse 26, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. What they would have heard is that prophet overlooked Jewish need and met a Gentile's need. And to the rulers in Nazareth, that is unacceptable. Verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. Jesus is referring to them, reminding them of what happened, because right now Nazareth is about to reject the greatest prophet of all. What response did this truth bring forth in a quaint religious setting on the Sabbath in the synagogue with the son of God reading Isaiah? You know what happened? It's exactly what Simeon said, that their hearts would be exposed. Look at verse 28. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What Luke 4 does is it compels us to consider whether we're any different than the Nazarenes in the synagogue who missed Jesus, even though they were within reach of him. They were within reach of him in the synagogue. Physically and spiritually, they had the scroll of Isaiah. Now they have the Messiah in their presence. Remember, these people gathered together for religious purposes. Just like we did this morning. To read scripture. To receive instruction. They woke up on a Saturday morning rather than a Sunday morning. Probably ate breakfast. Did a few chores. Then walked to the synagogue for worship. Not entirely unlike what you and I did this morning. And the question is, are we any different than them? They were monotheists. They were religious. They believed the scriptures. They were waiting for a Messiah. Hopefully our response is different. Hopefully we haven't simply gathered together to worship an American version of Jesus. A Jesus crafted in our own image that is okay with all of our Americanisms. Remember, the Jews took offense to Jesus reminding them of Elijah and Elisha's ministry. Let me ask you this morning, would you be filled with wrath if Jesus is more visibly at work among Arab countries, among Muslims? What if he is more active right now and more visibly showing himself to the Chinese or parts of Africa than he is here in America? See, we have this entitlement that certainly because we're on the side of Israel politically, God should favor us. Would we be filled with wrath if Jesus, in a way he's never shown himself to you and me, is doing so among Muslim people in Somalia? Because the Jews thought the Gentiles were racially inferior 
And that's why they wanted to kill the Messiah. But the picture is one of peace because it's not his time to die yet. He has to be crucified. He has to fulfill other scripture. And so it's almost as if he calmly walks through this enraged mob in Nazareth who should have known him. Here's why Jesus came. That same scroll that they handed to him in the synagogue says this in Isaiah 53. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. I love what it says about the suffering servant at the end of Isaiah 53. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I love what Hebrews says. We look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Why? Because God loves you. That's why. Not because you're lovable or because you're American or because you're religious. He loves you because he loves you. Do you know Jesus like that? Do you, have you accepted the claims he made about himself or have you overlooked him or misplaced him or rejected him? The Bible says all who receive him, he has given the right to be called the sons of God and they have been forgiven of their sin. I'm going to invite our music team Forward. They're going to lead us in a final hymn. A familiar hymn to those of us who gather regularly here at Highlands. And a great hymn to end this year on. The most important question I could pose to you at the end of the year of 2020 is this. Do you know Jesus in such a way that you are sure this morning your sins have been forgiven? And when he returns, which will be a day of vengeance, which 1 Thessalonians 4 says, will you either be ashamed at his coming or will you rejoice to finally look your Savior in the eyes? Let's pray.